Please turn in your Bible this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm preaching from the passage that I preached last Lord's Day morning, and so I'll read the same portion of Ephesians 4 that I read then. And that is Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. Here we have the words of the Apostle Paul. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness by which they lie and wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Amen. Well, let's once again look to God in prayer and ask for his help as we come to the preaching of the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it translated into our own language so we can understand it. So help us now because we need more than simply the words translated on the pages in front of us. We need more than capable minds from a worldly standpoint. We need your spirit. So grant us your Holy Spirit, me, to preach your word faithfully and all of us to hear it, to understand it, to believe it, to embrace it, to live by it, and to bring forth fruit to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So hear us and help us, for we ask it all in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, I began preaching from this passage last Lord's Day morning, and I want to finish what I had to say back then, but did not say It'll basically be the practical application of the things we saw last week. I focused simply on verses 11 through 13, and I had two headings. And so let me just take a brief bit of time here as we begin. 
and give you the substance of what I said in those two headings, and then we can move on to the um, practical application that I didn't get to. The two headings were Christ's gift to his church in Ephesians 4.11, and then secondly, Christ's goal for his church in verses 12 and 13. So focusing on the gifts for the church, we read in verse 11, after it had stated in verse 8 that he gave gifts to men when he ascended on high, we read, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So those are the gifts, and I broke them down into extraordinary gifts, gifts that are restricted to the New Testament age. I would put apostles, prophets, and they would be New Testament prophets, not the Old Testament prophets, because remember, it's talking about gifts that Christ gave to the church when he ascended on high. So the prophets were before Christ even appeared in a body on this earth, the Old Testament prophets, but not the New Testament prophets. So the extraordinary gifts, the unusual ones restricted to the New Testament age, apostles, prophets, evangelists. And then um, those are gone now. And so that leaves ordinary gifts, gifts that we could call standing gifts in the church of Christ. They'll be in the church as long as the church is in the world. And those are the pastors and teachers. And I stated that I think the best way to understand that with many other um, uh, who preach or write about this passage, believe it's referring to the same individuals, pastors and teachers. I think there are some translations that might even uh, translate it with a hyphen, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors, teachers. So in other words, the same people. The Bible calls them in the New Testament pastors, sometimes bishops, sometimes elders. It's one office, it's the pastoral office it's talking about. That's the ordinary gift here, pastors and teachers. Christ has given these to his church as of his ascent into glory. And then the second thing is Christ's goal for his church, and that's stated in verses 12 and 13. It's all what we saw last week. I'm refreshing your memories. If you weren't here, you can at least have an understanding of what this passage is saying in a summary way. It says, the reason God gave these gifts to the church are for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So I broke this down into the immediate or the direct goal of Christ giving these gifts to the church of pastors and teachers for our purposes. The immediate goal is for the work of ministry to go on in the church. And you remember how I stated it, um, it's that we pastors will equip all of you through our teaching to minister to one another. In fact, let's look at Romans 15 and verse 14. Notice the statement of the Apostle Paul there. And this is just to buttress this idea that it's the saints ministering to one another that Paul especially has in view there. 
Notice what he says to the church at Rome, people that he'd never met personally. I should take that back. You'll see in chapter 16, there's probably a whole bunch of them that Paul had met personally, but they were not the majority of the church in Rome. But he says about these people in this church that he had never visited, he said, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. So it's a special role of a pastor, or in the case of Paul, of an apostle, to teach and admonish God's people. But he said, I'm confident that you all can do that among yourselves and for one another. And so that's the idea here we have in verse 12. The pastors preach to equip the saints. They're equipped for the work of ministry of one another, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And that understanding of verse 12 is encouraged or uh, strengthened, we could say, by what it states in verse 16, where Paul wraps up this statement here where he says, from whom the whole body, that is from Christ, joined, so the whole church, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. In other words, every smallest part of the church has something to contribute, according to which the effective working, again, by which every part does its share, then what happens? It causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And that's consistent with what I explained about verse 12. The pastor teaches the word of God. All the saints are equipped for the work of ministry of the body to one another for the edifying of the body of Christ. So there's Christ's goal for his church in terms of the gifts of the pastor's uh, what we do is, in a sense, as we stand up here and preach, the beginning of a domino effect, I hope, among all the people of God in terms of our ministry one to another. And then secondly, the remote or ultimate goal, well, that, of course, is fruit. Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the goals are unity, first of all, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And then perfection is the next one. Notice the last part of verse 13. To a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And here on this point of maturity or perfection of the church, I had three observations. I said, number one, this is a never-ending pursuit. Just look a couple of epistles later here. Uh, the epistle of Colossians in the first chapter. I read this passage last week. We looked at it. Paul speaks, speaking about Christ in Colossians 1 and verse 28 says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The word warning there, or admonishing every man, is the same verb you have back in Romans 15, verse 14, where Paul said he was confident that the Roman Christians could do that to and for one another. I'm, I'm, I'm confident you are able to admonish one another. But he said, that's my special calling as a, pa as a pastor and an apostle. 
so that we may present every man perfect in Christ. And then he says in verse 29, to this end, I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And my first observation is this is a never-ending pursuit, this effort for the, for the church to be brought to maturity, to be built up, edified through the work of pastors and also through the work of the brethren, the body, to one another. It's a never-ending pursuit. It was for Paul, he said, in his ministry. So should it be for all of us. My second observation was this. It's an attainable pursuit that is genuine spiritual maturity and likeness to Christ is attainable. You might be one of those people who says, as a Christian even, oh, I'm so unlike Christ. I'm so far from the standard set before us. Well, I have two answers to that. One, I agree with you. I have no complaints about that statement from uh, an ideal perspective in terms of my looking at Christ and what he is like and my looking at myself and what I'm like. I don't disagree with you. On the other hand, if that's all you ever say and that's the only template you have for thinking about this subject of Christian maturity and progressive sanctification, it's really inadequate. It's an adequate way to look at it. Paul says this is the goal. And it's something that we strive for and it's something that we should look at as an attainable pursuit, both on an individual basis for every individual Christian, if he's a real Christian, and on a corporate basis because that's what's especially in view here. That's my next observation, in fact. But my point is simply this. God has given us as individual Christians and as a church, as a body of Christ, he's given us his Holy Spirit and he has given us, to put it in Peter's words in 2 Peter 1.3, all things pertaining to life and godliness. If you're a Christian, God has given you everything you need to truly become Christ-like, though never perfectly like Christ in this life, or entirely like Christ. That won't even happen in the day to come. We won't be, the age to come, we won't become divine but it's an attainable goal. And so the theological term progressive sanctification is a good one. That you're sanctified as a Christian means you are made holy. Not with an asterisk. Not as perfect as Christ, no. Not absolutely spotless in this life, no. But truly holy. Just stop and think, why? is one of the main words for God's people in the New Testament, saints, which means holy ones, because it's a reality. And, and the theologians call it progressive sanctification, the sanctification or um, conformity to Christ that goes on in this life. They call it progressive sanctification because not only is it something that's real and is really happening throughout the course of life, but it's going from one step to another. Like it says in Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 4.18, that the path of the righteous man is like the path of the sun in, in the sky. It continues to grow 
unto the full day. In other words, till it gets right overhead and is shining the brightest and the hottest. Progressive sanctification. So this is a never-ending pursuit that the saints would be matured. And it's an attainable pursuit. We shouldn't look at it as pie in the sky or something that's impossible. And then the third thing is that the focus here is upon corporate growth. The edifying of the body of Christ, verse 12, till we all come to the unity of the faith. So there's individual Christian growth that's involved in that, but as Paul especially has in view, corporate growth and maturity. And I focused on that a little bit, that speaking about the idea of corporate maturity or the maturity of a particular body of Christ or church. And I said, perhaps we could look at it this way, that just like with a Christian, when God saves him, the Holy Spirit comes to him and he makes his home in, in that Christian's heart so that Paul could say in Ephesians 6, your body, if you're a Christian, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God by his Spirit, we could say that's true of a church as well. The Holy Spirit makes his home in churches. He stakes out a spot in a church. And he doesn't want to leave in a sense. And the more mature that church becomes, there's a sense in which we could say the Holy Spirit is more um, at home there. And he does things there. Like you do more things at your home than you do at your friend's house when you go there. Because... You have the things you like to use to do things, whether it's tools or whether it's books that you like to read or people that you like to be around. And he has the liberty to do them because he's at home. And so I just made this practical exhortation. Therefore, brethren, we should be very jealous. If we say the Spirit of God is here in this church, we should be jealous to keep him. And I just mentioned a couple ways that we should manifest that jealousy. One, don't grieve him away by ungodly treatment of one another. Especially looking at verses 29 to 32 of this very chapter. Do we treasure the presence of the Spirit of God? Is it something we rejoice in? Not only that we rejoice, one brother said to me, on the way out the door Sunday evening, he said, you know, I, I appreciate what you were saying there. And he said, but I, I, I also feel a great deal of um, a great weight on my shoulders when you tell us that. Because we don't want to grieve the Spirit of God away. We don't want to do anything that will make the Spirit of God want to depart from us. So look at verses 29 and following. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Don't Grieve him, but love one another. And one of the texts I used last week, and I'll read it again today, is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and following, where Paul does the same things. He talks about the importance of unity 
And then he goes right on in the next sentence to speak about the importance of love for one another in the body. So don't grieve him away by ungodly treatment of the brethren. And then also pray that God will keep his spirit here. Jesus' promise in Luke eleven thirteen 13 was that if we pray for the Holy Spirit of God, God promises that he will give us his spirit. And so let's pray, brethren. Let's live in such a way with our love for one another and pray earnestly that God would never write Ichabod over the door of our church. Somebody asked me what Ichabod was on the way out the door. And I told him, but I'm not going to say it again because I'm going to ask him on the way out the door this morning. He was a shorter person. <laughs> so, you're forewarned. But now, that's what I said last week. And now let me just take what I said last week and apply it. And I want to apply it in three different directions. I don't mean with three specific directions like orders, but kind of like different directions like north, south, east, and west. And the first one is this. I want to speak about application of this text from the perspective of our own local church or our own assembly. And first of all, what I mean is I want to say some things in terms of our constant obligations to love one another. Let's look at Galatians 6, verse 10 for a moment. Just back a few pages. Galatians 6, verse 10. Here we have the Apostle Paul writing again. And he says, and we're just breaking into the context here. He says, therefore... <clears throat> As we have opportunity, let us do good to all. And by that he means all people, all men. Especially, he says, though, to those who are of the household of faith. So the principle Paul is stating here is this. That while we are obligated to love all men, all people, we are more obligated to love our brethren. See that? That's right in the text. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially, in a special way, in a concentrated way, with a special sense of obligation and responsibility. Let's do it to those who are of the household of faith. That means Christians. So in other words, as a Christian, I look at it this way. I have an obligation to love everybody I meet everybody I see, everybody I have an opportunity to interact with. Think of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, verses 30 and following. What was he teaching there? He was teaching what it means to love your neighbor, like the Bible says, love your neighbor. So who is my neighbor? Remember the Jew said to him, and Jesus told that parable of the Good Samaritan. In other words, even the person you put in the, ca the, the, the category of least desirable people in the world, which for a Jew was a Samaritan. And here that Samaritan showed love for a Jew. He said, even in a case like that, if someone is in that category of yours and that person comes across your path, you should show love to him. That's what I mean when I say we should love all people, 
You show love to them, self-denying love, even if it's to people you never met, even if it's to people you haven't met, but you're already um, uh, predisposed to hate them or not like them because of your sinful prejudices, or even if it's somebody that you do know and have met before, but you dislike him more than anybody else in the world because of what he did to you or what he said about you that one time or all the time, as you might say. You love that person. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you and persecute you even. Or as Paul wrote in Romans 12, starting at verse 18, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people, all of them, even your enemies. If it's your enemy, in other words, someone who has made himself your enemy in a legitimate way, in other words, you, you didn't do anything wrong to them, but they hate you for whatever reason, and Paul's talking about that person. You call yourself a Christian, show love to that person. If he's hungry, give him something to eat. You have it. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. If you have that, show love. All people. But Paul says we're even more obliged to do that toward those who are of the household of faith. Christian people, and I'll just, without, you know, it's not stated exactly in the text, but that's especially, brethren, the brethren, the Christians that God has put you in the closest association with, like people in your own Christian church, your own congregation. Most of you here are members of this congregation. Some of you would be members of another congregation, but that's who you're especially obliged to love. So I'll even say this. Maybe you're here because, you know, you're a Christian, you're a member of a church, but you don't like the people in your church all that much, and you like to visit different churches, and you're more comfortable that way. Well, when I say you should love those who are in your own congregation, what I'm saying is this. You should clean up your act a little bit and go to your own church because you should especially love those that God has put you in the closest Christian fellowship with. And if you have to say, well, there's something wrong with that church, then figure out how to deal with that by addressing it in a gracious way with the leadership of that church or by saying in a gracious way, I need to look for another church. Anyway, that was an aside. So this is what we need to do. And it ties in with, with some of the things we are going to be focusing on and have looked at already in our church constitution, the lessons that we will continue at least on a, a regular basis. Um, across the board, there are things we could say in our church constitution that address how we should live in love with one another, but I'm just picking one section here and I'll try not to expound it at length, but if I do, then we, won't, we can you know, kind of just go by it shortly when we, when we come to it in the Sunday school class. But there's one section that says it's our obligation as members in this church to promote edification that is building up and peace. So it fits right in with our passage, doesn't it? This whole idea of unity that we are to 
aim to come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And so listen to what our, our Constitution says at this point. It says, since the church is represented in Scripture as a body having many members, each of the members having its particular function, yet also having a concern for the health and protection of the whole body, the church expects that those who join it, that each of its members will strive for the good of the entire body. Now, that's a, a good reflection of what this passage in Ephesians 4 is talking about. And then it focuses on some of the basic or foundational aspects of the way we live with one another and the way we relate to one another. And it says this, the members must actively seek to cultivate acquaintance with one another and maintain mutual transparency and honesty with one another. Now, we, we won't have the same level of knowledge. We won't have the same level of knowledge with all of the people in the church. We won't have the same depth of relationship. That's not what it's saying. It's, a, it's not saying you have to be as close as a person can possibly be with every member of the congregation, and you can't be any closer with one or a few members than you are with any others. It's not saying that. Just that we cultivate acquaintance, and we maintain mutual transparency and honesty we don't have some people in the church that we answer their questions and other people we just don't say anything to them. Or, other, or some people we, we answer questions honestly and others we, we tell them fibs or white lies because you know, we don't want to open ourselves up. I mean, I'm not saying you have to tell everyone what you would tell to your closer friends in the church. I'm not saying that, but you see what I'm saying. We have to have genuine love. So we cultivate acquaintance. We maintain mutual transparency and honesty. And then it goes on to say why. So that they may be better able to pray for one another and love, comfort, and encourage one another and then also help one another materially as necessity may require. You have to know people to be able to do these things and perform these ministries one to another. And then it gives a third thing. Besides cultivating acquaintance and maintaining mutual transparency and honesty, and it's this. In addition, members must discreetly confess their sins to one another, faithfully admonish and exhort one another, and refrain from all backbiting and gossip. That doesn't mean you have to confess every sin to every person in the church, but you, you sin against a person, you should confess your sin. Or in front of a person, you could, should confess your sin. You get the idea, as has been preached and taught here many times. Look again at Ephesians 4.12. It fits in with this whole idea. The pastors preach to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. It doesn't mean, though this could be included, is that the pastors teach people so that you too may stand up here and teach from the pulpit. Now that may well happen, God willing, with some of the people, some of the men in the church, but not with all. 
But it's so the whole church can engage in the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. And this is part of the way we do it, in the way we relate to one another and manifest and demonstrate our love for one another as members of the same body. Just like back in Romans 12 was one of the passages we looked at last week. We won't go back there now, but Romans 12, 4 to 8, it, it lists a number of different gifts, not just public gifts like we have in Ephesians 4, 11, the kind of people who would be performing uh, a big part of their ministry behind a pulpit, for instance, but people who have other gifts, like even it mentioned the gift of giving. If you have the gift of giving, then do it liberally, my paraphrase. But that's the idea. And brethren, just before I move on to the next sub-point here, we, we engage in this kind of ministry and we show this love for one another like the Constitution is speaking about here at this point. We do it with a scriptural perspective. It's that, said early on in that paragraph that um, we have functions as part of the body and it says and we carry those things out having a concern for the health and protection of the whole body think again in terms of ephesians chapter 4 the goal here is unity so that means a lot of people are involved not just one you're already as a general rule unified with yourself unless you're a double-minded man, but you're unified with yourself. But that's not the idea here. It's with one another. And so our perspective is with this maturation that Paul wants us to aim at, we have our eye on the entire body, the church of Christ. And that should be a corporate mindset. That should be our normal way of thinking as Christians who are privileged to be members of a Christian church. So we're looking at our own local assembly. And the first thing is in terms of our constant obligations to love one another. The second way I want to apply it is this, in terms of the current circumstances of our congregation. In terms of the, certain terms of the current circumstances of our congregation, Trinity Baptist Church. And I just have two things. And the first one is this, pastoral transitions could say transition in light of what's just ahead we have one pastor who's been a pastor here for dozen years 10 years 10 years pastor khan who is becoming a full-time pastor at the end of the year, he's becoming fully supported as a pastor by this church. Everybody knows that, but just this is something that's going on in the life of our church. That's why I mention it. And then I said pastoral transitions because there's another reality in the life of our church that it won't be long. We will be needing more pastors. And that's not like a prophecy or you know any hidden hidden things coming to light we have five pastors four of whom well i'll say three because 
because one of them is younger than I am. But three of us, at least, if not four, are old men. It's just a reality, if you can count. So my point is this. There are pastoral transitions coming in the life of our church. And as we anticipate these transitions, brethren, let's remember the teaching of this passage. And the first one would be what it says in verse 11, that pastors and teachers are Christ's gifts to his people, Christ's gifts to his church. And so first, we should, you should thank God for them. You should thank God for your pastors. If they're gifts, then we could say they are as free and divine, which means they are gracious gifts, as any spiritual blessings that you and I receive. I blush a little bit, at least inwardly, to say that about myself, but I, I believe the Scripture. So I don't hesitate to say it about myself. And I, and I say it about my fellow pastors. We're just men. We're fallible men like you all. But listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. For the record, I believe that you as a congregation do recognize us in that way and you do esteem us and you are thankful to God for us. So I'm thankful for that. But we need to increase, as Paul says, more and more. Just a little bit earlier in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Paul speaks these words about love for the brethren. And I think it applies to other graces as well, including this one. But here's what he said. He said, but concerning brotherly love, you, that is the people in the church at Thessalonica, he says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And Paul's saying, my knowledge of you tells me that you do do that already. And that's what he goes on to say. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So be thankful for the gifts that God gives you and seek to be even more thankful. And then the second point here is this in light of what this passage is teaching, especially there in verse 11, that these are gifts to the church, the pastors God has given you, and whatever pastors he ever gives you as a church, that you should be thankful for them. And secondly, you should seek pastors from the Lord. Seek pastors from Jesus Christ. It tells us in verse 8 that when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. Verse 11, he gave some to be apostles, prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. If God gives you pastors and teachers, they're gifts of Christ. So seek these gifts from him. Seek them through Christ from God the Father, who gives every good and perfect gift. And like I said earlier, if you know the times and you can do the math, you know that we need more than just one immediate addition to the full-time ranks of the eldership here at Trinity Baptist Church, at least as we look ahead and look forward 
And so be in prayer on a regular basis to the Lord of the harvest, as Jesus said in Matthew 9 and verse 38, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest and that he would send forth laborers, laborers into this particular part of his vineyard and of his harvest. So that's the first point regarding pastoral transitions. And then a second one is, and again, I'm not trying to sound the alarm, um, but I'm just stating what is a reality that many would be aware of to some degree or another. Financial pressures. Financial pressures. We'll have our annual meeting come up. Some of you might be aware already that when we've, we've talked about people who have left the church over the coming years, there's a whole bunch of guys in this church that have retired even just within the last year or two or three. And so are there financial pressures? Yes, for our church. And from a human standpoint, you look at that and you say, well, it might seem all we can do is keep working hard to provide and to tighten our belts and so on. I mean, the pastors aren't going to let us start a um, internet membership drive or something like that. You know, we're not, that's not what we're going to do. No. But brethren, there is something far more important and useful that we can do. And you already know what it is. It's that we pray, first of all. We pray that the Lord will provide. Pastors are God's provision. And so are all the financial means to take care of them. They are God's provision. And then the second thing beyond prayer is this. And it's simple, and it's what I always say about these kinds of things. But the reason I do is that it's true. Persevere in obedience. That's what we can do. Keep doing the will of Christ. Keep in times of any kind of pressure doing what the Word of God tells us to do, like we see it in this passage, Ephesians chapter 4, like we see it in Philippians chapter 2, which we read last week. I'll read it again now, and I'll I may come back to it again today, but it says in Philippians 2, beginning at verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. There's the unity mentioned in Ephesians 4. But then it goes on to focus on that matter of building up one another, especially by loving one another. So look at verses 3 and following. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it focuses on his self-denying love for his people. Brethren, these are the things we need to remember in times such as this, when we go through trials in the life of our church. They're good trials. We're, we're getting another full-time pastor here in the days ahead. But as you think of 
the pressure aspects of it, just bear in mind, this is the way, by prayer and by pursuing this unity and maturity in the church of Christ by loving one another. And then secondly, that was my first direction I wanted to apply this in from the perspective of our own local church and assembly as we consider our life among ourselves. Secondly, I want to apply it from the perspective of our church in the midst of the world. Our church in the midst of this world. And I mean this world at this time, especially. And I have a few things in mind, like a world in which we are witnessing right around us the breakdown of what we sometimes call common grace, the breakdown of at least what we called back when I was in college many years ago, I don't know if they still use this wording or not, but social mores, the ways we conduct our lives as a society, and from a moral perspective and the expectations we have of one another, the way, the way I learned things growing up and just saw in the world around us and in our country around us, uh, things are not what they were. And we've seen a lot of decay and breakdown just in recent, the recent decade or two especially, but especially in the last pushing 60 years now. And then also the, 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 what shall we say, the, the decaying of the standards of decency and morality in our world. And I don't have to be specific because they all come to your mind when I say things like this. That's what I have in mind when I say I want to apply these things from the perspective of our, of our church in the midst of this world. And then think of the wars going on in this world. And just, you know, any war going on and we're in a different age from when I was growing up and there was the Vietnam War. We're in a different age in terms of the way that these things are reported on and that we can see them on a daily basis. I mean, hours don't go by and things are reported in this world. And it's, it's ugly, it's shocking. And one of the things that's most shocking is not only the hatred you see manifest in the wars, but the hatred has been stirred up in recent days in every corner of the world. I mean, it's, it's atrocious. The wickedness that is revealed at a time like this. And then on top of these things, there's a fact that just like four years ago, we are now in another election cycle here. 2024 is right around the corner which means more uncertainty in terms of facing the future. It means, especially in the midst of a presidential campaign, in our country anyway, potential for further deterioration of the social order and of our culture around us, even as we think of what might come when we think of policies that are relatively new in our country things the government has been doing, the potential for persecution to be unleashed in this country as never before, brethren. Those are the kind of things I'm thinking about. And my point is here. In the midst of all this, let us, the people of God, continue to focus and 
focus in an even more concerted way on this matter of love, as we see in Ephesians 4 and as we see in Philippians chapter 2. Some of you may be aware of a book that was written by Pastor Jeff Johnson from Grand Rapids. He's preached here on, a, on occasion. I think he was here in the recent year for uh, one of our conferences, if I remember right. But he wrote a book recently called Taming the Fingers, Wisdom for Social Media. I know he started out with some sermons in which he addressed that subject in their church there in Grand Rapids a few years back. Providentially, I was there for the first message that he preached then. And it was back in 2020. I was on vacation, so I was in the pew, not in the pulpit. And he's preaching this message. And since it was 2020, the situation was, it was in the first year of COVID-19. And all the stress that went along with that. Um, the stress was made worse that year, you'll remember, 2020, by racial strife, and then, of course, there was an election that year, political strife, everything was aggravated. And he was speaking about things he'd seen on social media that greatly grieved him, especially because he was looking at things that were put on social media by Christians, or at least professing Christians, and some even Christians that he knew well. And so he said, I need to address these things. And that's what became the seed of that book, Taming the Fingers, Wisdom for Social Media. In other words, taming the fingers, just like we talk about bridling the tongue, watching carefully what you write if you're a Christian, just as what you might speak. You've got to put a bridle on it. And so his point was this, that even Christians sometimes... Their thinking and their commitments when it comes to the very things I'm talking about, their thinking led them, it seemed, to forget their commitment to God and commitment to Christ and made them forget their first obligation, not only to love all men, but to love one another. And I think they justified it by the, what's going on in the world around them. And the fact that even social discourse has gone so far downhill. Well, that's, that's what everybody else is saying. And that's the only way you get heard nowadays. And it seems to be effective. Because people I like are talking that way and they're at least making some dents in people's eardrums, it might seem. So I guess it's okay. No, it's not okay. We need to remember our obligations, our commitments as Christians. So let's remember that even though the circumstances we're in may try us and test us, they do not exempt us from conducting ourselves as Christians. Not when we're speaking to someone face to face, not even if that person is an unbeliever, not even if that person is an enemy through no fault of mine. I'm not exempted from being gracious and loving. 
And brethren, let us not let all the division in the world infect us. Let's pray that God would so work that it will not even distract us from what God has put us in this world to do. Look a little bit later in Philippians chapter 2 at what Paul writes, starting at verse 14, going through verse 16. Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. That means holding steadfastly to it so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. What does God want you to do as a Christian? What has he called you to do in the midst of this perverse generation? He wants you to shine as lights. The one way you can do that is by loving and continue to manifest that a Christian is different from a non-Christian. That's the way that you will shine as lights in this world. But I need to press on and give my final uh, point here. And it's this, that we, I want us not only to think about how we apply this in our own congregation and with our present circumstances in this world, but also looking at the even larger context. And what I mean there is this. I don't want us as a church, though Paul tells us we should focus on our church in ministering to one another, but I don't want us to become navel gazers. Trinity Baptist Church itself becoming the navel. I've already been saying here, we have to think about how we are perceived in this world and we should want to be perceived as Christians. Remember how Jesus said in John 13, this world will know you by the way you love one another. So in the larger context, we don't want to be navel gazers, but always keep this goal in perspective. That is, the goal of loving one another and maturing through love and unity as a church. We have greater obligations that we should always keep in mind. Greater goals, greater desires as God's people and as Christ's disciples. And I'm just going to give you four of them if I have time. I may not even have time. But the point is this. Our duty to eagerly pursue unity and maturity as a body of Christ by loving our brethren could be considered as a subset of some other greater goal, if you will. And let me give you four of them. First is the second great commandment. I've already been doing that in a sense. We have a great overarching goal, a great overarching obligation to love one another as a church, yes, but that's part of the goal of loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's the second great commandment. So whenever you think of anyone in this world, Christian or non-Christian, in this church or out of this church, friend or enemy, whatever, that's your goal, to love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? 
the Jew asks Jesus, and Jesus says, everybody that comes across your path, whether he's like you or not, whether he's on your list of most undesirable human beings or most desirable, you're obligated to love him or her. That's your great goal. That's the obligation, whether you're aware of it or not. You may not even be a Christian sitting here today. That is your obligation before God, even if you're not a Christian. It's the obligation of every human being. And you might ask, well, how can I do that? How can I do that? Natively, I love myself. Maybe you're honest enough to understand that and to admit that. I love myself more than I love everyone else. That's how we all come into this world. How can we love other people? I heard a survey this week, the reports of it anyway, and it was, um, what do you need, that was the question, to be happy? And in terms of money, it was you know, coming in dollar amounts. So my recollection is that um, baby boomers, my category, I need, they said, on average, about $150,000 a year to be happy, okay? That's the baby boomers. The millennials, this is not an anti-millennial message, but they need, on average, $525,000 a year to be happy. So my point is that this is how we all come into this world. We don't come into this world thinking that the way to be happy is by loving other people. But that really is the Bible's perspective. That's God's perspective. And if you're a human being, it's your God's perspective. The God to whom you are accountable and before whom you will stand one day. Just listen to a few scriptures for a moment. Proverbs 15 Verse 16, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. Proverbs 16, 8, better is a little, little bit of money that is, little possessions with righteousness than vast revenues without justice or righteousness. And then Proverbs 17, verse 1, better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. So you may not say, well, I need $525,000 a year to be happy. You might not say that, but everybody has a number. I don't know what you would write in there. Proverbs 17.1 says it could happen with this. If you, what do you need to be happy? A dry morsel. With God, with Christ with brethren that I can love. And it's all icing on the cake if I have brethren who love me. But that's the idea of the scripture. And Jesus said, what, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What would you give in exchange for your soul? What do you need to make you happy? If it's a dollar amount, you've already given up your soul. You're ready to buy happiness. You can't. Christianity is different from every other religion. We, we already read from Philippians 2 and in Philippians 4, Paul says, if we just have food and clothing, we can be content with that. 
Well, how can you be content with that? Paul says, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christianity does not just demand that you do this and this and this and love people who are unlovable and all that. Christianity also provides the power, it provides the ability to do such difficult things. And the way it does that is by you acknowledging your sinfulness, acknowledging your need of salvation from your sin, asking God to give you the grace to love others in your heart, repenting of your sins, in other words, and trusting in God, trusting in Jesus Christ to renew you from the inside out and give you the grace and the ability to love others. And I'll close on that note then. The Apostle Paul wrote it this way, having become a Christian, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, I died to myself. But as a Christian, when you're saved, you don't just die to yourself, you become alive to God. And he goes on to say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Through Christ alone can you find strength and grace to love other people. And I just urge you, to seek that from him today before this day draws to a close. And I'll pray to that end for you as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would take it and write it upon all of our hearts and that you would so work through and by your word that we would love one another, that we would love even our enemies, that we would pursue unity in the body of Christ, and that we would seek and do all these things, not just because we're people persons, not just because we, we love unity so much, but because you are our God, and we love you, and we want to bring glory to you, and we want to know your smile and your blessing. So hear us and help us and answer our prayers and do bring some to life this day who are outside of Jesus Christ and to whom things like brotherly love are just a foreign concept. Make it their life from this day going forward. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.